Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey everyone, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Jenna Spinelli, a journalism instructor at Penn State and host of the Democracy Works podcast. I am here today with Kimberly Meltzer, who is Associate Professor of Communication and Chair of the Department of Communication at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. She is the author of From News to Talk, The Expansion of Opinion and Commentary in U.S. Journalism, which was published in 2019 by SUNY Press. Kim, thanks for joining us on the New Books Network. Hi, Jenna. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm excited to talk with you about the book and and some of what you learned from the the reporters and the journalists that you interviewed. But before we get to that, um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in this area of research? Sure. So as you said, um, I'm a professor and I teach undergraduates at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Um, But prior to my academic career, so I did go to graduate school and I earned my master's and then PhD in communication from the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. But prior to that, I worked in journalism at NBC in New York and at CNN in Atlanta and then later in New York. And I also worked briefly for some local and regional newspapers, both here in the Washington, D.C. area where I'm located and in the Philadelphia area. Um, so it was some time ago now, but I do have professional journalism experience in my background, and that's what led me you know, in graduate school and ever since then to want to study and uh, understand how journalists do their work, how they think and talk about the work that they do, and also the work of their peers as our environment, our you know, political, technological, cultural environment is constantly changing. So right. now I teach and do research about journalism and communication to try to inspire future journalists. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how did you uh, particularly uh, decide to, to focus on this issue of opinion and commentary? So let's see. I Coming out of grad school, um, I published a book a few years after I graduated with my PhD and uh, in 2010, and it was about TV news anchors. And by 2010, the era of the TV news anchors had already been on the decline for a while. Um, But what was clear by that time already was that we were seeing much more opinion and commentary in news and some 
said incivility in especially our political media discourse um, than we had previous in the decades you know prior to that. Um, and so while lots of other people started studying um, the effects, right? What are the effects of increased incivility and increased opinion in the news on news users, on readers and viewers? Um, I, of course, I'm always interested in the journalistic perspective on this issue. So it made me think, you know, I think I want to embark on some new research um, asking journalists uh, why they think this change came about, what, what's the cause of these changes, and how are they and their news organizations um, adapting, if they are, and, you know, dealing with these changes. Right. And, and so uh, you went out and talked to some journalists. Um, can you uh, tell us about, uh, you know, without obviously going into to listing everyone, your, your book does, does have a list of every person that you interviewed, but <laughs> in, in, in broad terms, you know, what kind of people were you, you looking for to, to talk with? National reporters or print or TV or, you know, how did you decide uh, who to focus on? So I ended up talking with a variety of journalists from across different types of media, including newspaper, print, you know, online, television, and radio. So really covering all different types of media. Um, there's no secret to the, how the sort of method began. Um, it was twofold. First, because of my previous experience in journalism and connections I still had to people in the field, um, including, you know, bringing people to campus and into my classrooms and um, for other research that I do. I, you know, I did go to uh, journalists I had a connection with and um, started there. And then it was sort of a snowball method to some extent, uh, asking those journalists to refer me to other journalists in their networks. Um, so that was one approach with the interviews. But then I also did have a more focused um, approach or targeted approach with the interviews. There were a certain kind of journalists who I knew I really wanted to speak with. Um, and these are the journalists, this sounds strange, but these are the journalists who cover media. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's sort of a niche area within journalism, but most large news organizations have a reporter within their organization whose job it is or whose beat is to cover the media. Uh, so they often write about, you know, they're writing about their peers. They're sometimes critiquing their peers. Um, and even at times they have to uh, talk about what their own organizations are doing or have done. So I was particularly interested in talking with um, that group of journalists. So people like um, Brian Stelter, you know, who's at CNN, or um, Paul Farhi, who reports on the media for the Washington Post, or Eric Wemple, who writes what he calls a reported blog about the media, also for the Post. Um, so I wanted to make sure you know, that I caught a good number of those people um, to get their perspectives too. Right, yeah, and, and you actually talk at the, at the beginning of the book about the idea of journalists as communities of, of practice, which is a, a term that people might be familiar with from other forms of scholarship, other areas of, of, of study or other professions. But how does that, that apply to journalists and, and these, these folks you were talking to for the book? So you're right that uh, the sort of theory of communities of practice is one that was developed 
a lot, you know, a long time ago, and it was applied to other fields outside of journalism. Um, so, you know, how do web developers or people working in the tech industry or, or in education even, um, how do they talk to get, you know, talk to each other and um, work together either uh, if they're physically proximate, you know, can meet in person or if they have to do that remotely or virtually, how do they stay in touch in order to um, have their practices evolve, to learn new practices, um, what would, what's successful, uh, you know, that they learn from each other. So I adapted this framework. There were just a few other um, communication and journalism scholars who had started to look at this in relation to how journalists do their work. Um, and so this is a, an idea that I really developed through the book. Um, which is to look at journalists as communities of practice um, who develop, advance, and change their practices as members of subgroups. So, for example, um, political reporters. I mean, yes, people talk about how Washington is so insular and reporters inside the Beltway versus in the heartland and other places, you know, um, have, work, have different kinds of work that they do and different perspectives. But journalists who are on the same beat, um, or you know, for another example, journalists who are covering um, benefits technology or another field, they tend to look at each other's work. They tend to run into each other when they're covering the same events or issues or people. Um, and some of them are you know, in touch uh, online, remotely, virtually, in order to always be trying to fine tune and evolve their practices, you know, as, as factors in the environment are changing. Sure. So, this, so that's, you know, something that I used um, sort of a lens, you know, through which I looked at what journalists um, said throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I think like, like a lot of things you can maybe look at that communities of, of practice model in, in a couple of different ways. I mean, I, on the one hand, I could see how it, it's beneficial for people to be talking with each other and, and trying to, you know, grapple with some of these changes, especially at the speed with which they're happening. But, but you know, I also think about the kind of boys on the bus mentality, uh, you know, particularly mm -hmm. since we are right in the middle of a, of a campaign season. I think there's been some criticism of when, reporters and, and journalists get too much into this like pack mentality that their coverage tends to look homogenous and the, the, the product or the, the information that, that readers get suffers as a, as a result. Um, did this come up at all in, in the course of your, your interviews or was it something you were thinking about as you were trying to work through this communities of practice idea? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not something that I focused on, um, in the book, I mean, I think maybe some better examples of, um, you know, activities journalists were engaged in that they told me about um, that I could see where I could see, you know, communities of practice at work were things like um, figuring out how to best make use of social media. So, again, I started the research for this book in 2004 or 2014, um, uh, but by then journalists were already, you know, fully using social media, yet a lot of their news organizations didn't have established policies 
for how they should use social media. So one of the things that you know journalists expressed was that while all their news organizations are most most of their news organizations wanted them to be active on social media, um, there weren't articulated set policies about exactly how should they should do that. And so that was one of the ways that journalists sort of looked to each other um, to see, well, what are, what are my peers doing? What seem to be strategies that are effective and, um, you know, that are uh, being successful with other, with my peers in other places? Um, and to talk, you know, and, and to sort of communicate about that. Um, some, organ you know, some news organizations have established uh, and, and officially articulated policies about journalist social media use. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, you know, in terms of um, the PAC mentality of journalists and journalists thinking in these sort of insular uh, uh, ways, I think you know, one of the comments that journalists made um, had more to do with um, the polarization in politics and how journalists have, in their view, followed that trend. So, you know, the journalists themselves who I talked with um, would not want to admit if they, if they think this or they don't believe that um, news or the media, you know, shape politics. They think it's the other way around and that it's not that the way the media behave um, has influenced our, po you know, our political environment, but they think they just reflect that political culture. So they reflect it, but they don't create or shape it. Um, however, they do think there are a lot of problematic aspects to, um, you know, the very, uh, the clearly opinionated uh, news organizations and journalists that we have today. Right. Yeah. And, and I want to come back to that, that notion of, of polarization and, and civility, because you do spend a lot of time on that in the book. But, um, but before we get too far into that, um, can you explain what what exactly you you mean or, or, or what you're thinking when you say um, the expansion of opinion and commentary? I think those things are often like blurred together or there's a whole, you know, there's there's this you have pundits and you have analysts and you have journalists themselves sometimes filling these roles. The, the, the lines are all becoming very blurry and I think have probably become even blurrier even, even since you did these interviews in, in 2014, 2015. Um, so can you just help give us some, some definitions there? Sure. So just one thing I was going to mention was in addition to interviewing over 30 journalists, um, you know, myself, uh, I also looked at over 10 years of published journalistic discourse. So everything I could find through many you know, different databases that had um, been published or broadcasted in which a journalist had uh, discussed opinion in the news or uh, incivility in the news. So it was also an analysis of a decade's worth of um, published journalistic discourse. So a lot of people do use opinion and commentary interchangeably. Opinion, you know, can, some people think that's also synonymous with um, uh, point of view, expressing a point of view, um, or providing commentary. Commentary doesn't always have to be partisan. So you can provide commentary um, that's, you know, that might include analysis of a news event or different people's um, comments or views of an issue. 
but it, you know, with the with the rise of opinion in news, uh, that has been manifested in several ways. So one is uh, that news organizations have many of them have evolved to become um, more overtly partisan. So some of the outlets that previously, you know, ten years ago we still thought of as sort of middle of the road, um, now not just seem to be, I think for most people clearly do lean um, one way or the other politically. And then you also have journalists, individual people within those outlets um, who have become more overtly partisan uh, or you know, giving their political opinions. Um, now it's hard to break down, you know, uh, all the different categories you mentioned between, you know, analysts. What, so are you a are you a full time journalistic employee of a news organization, or you know, an anchor or a host of a show, or are you a paid um, expert or commentator who's brought on to talk about certain things, um, or are you just a one time occasional uh, guest who doesn't get paid, you know, to talk about something you're knowledgeable on? So there's actually a whole host, of, you know, of yeah. of, uh, of people um, who might, you know, who might appear in the course of a news, uh, you know, an article or a TV show or radio program um, talking about politics in some yeah. way. And 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 do those do those distinctions matter? Do you think? I mean, I you know, thinking about cable news in particular, I I can't recall. A situation where you know somebody who was on providing commentary on a topic where the the station disclosed whether that person was a full time analyst or whether they were just a, a guest person or kind of what you know anything about what their their standing was. Do you think that that's important for for news organizations to disclose or for the public to know? I do. Uh, I think it would be it, tremendously useful, helpful to viewers or readers, uh, if it was made very transparent, um, you know, each person who is presented and where he or she is coming from and what the arrangement is with that outlet. I think that would be very, very useful um, because it's not always clear if you're watching a, a TV news show uh, with talking, talking heads, panels, we saw this a lot um, after the State of the Union, lots of different political panels uh, it's not always clear who are, you know, what's the arrangement between these people and the, and the network. Um, and some of them, a lot of them, you know, are paid and do have some kind of contractual you know, agreement, um, and get paid for their services. And then, you know, there are other times on, uh, just a particular episode of a news program when you have a, a guest on who's not, you know, who doesn't have any kind of official arrangement and is just being brought on that one time or a few times um, for certain types of stories. Right. And and that that leads to to another point that, that you make is that there's, you know, uh, one of the reasons that there is this rise in opinion is because clashing views make for good television, right? So if you if you think about that panel, there's usually someone from the left and someone from the right, and maybe somebody who's who's more moderate. But but either way, there's like these all these different views that are like boxes you have to check maybe. And I think that's that's true of, of even a, a print or, or online story. I mean, you certainly feel like you have to cover all your bases and make sure that all the all the voices are, are represented. But um, thinking thinking 
about TV specifically. I'm wondering, like, is, how did that, how did we come to the place where it was decided we have to have this, you know, several people on and have this kind of clashing of ideas? I mean, who, who decided that would make good TV? Was, was it a conscious decision or did it just kind of evolve organically? Um, how did we get here, basically? Thank you. It's a good, it's another good question. Um, I mean, I know I'm speaking with someone who also works, you know, has worked in journalism. You know, I mean, giving a very brief history of journalism in the U.S., I tell my, this is what I you know, talk about with my students, that at the founding of the United States, mm-hmm. You know, after the Declaration of Independence and then the signing of the Constitution, um, that we had a partisan press system in the U.S., uh, that that's the way our country began. And what that meant was that every news outlet, which was basically only newspapers at the time, um, gave the news through a clearly partisan point of view, or, you know, ideological point of view. And they didn't try to hide the fact. It was out there in the open. And at the time, it was thought that the system could work, could be effective as long as you had different people reading different versions of the news and then talking with each other. And under this model, uh, it was thought that it was being in conversation and and in the clash of ideas between people, among people, um, comparing their different versions of, of the news um, that each person would figure out where the truth lies and what he or she thinks, you know, is the right course of action. Um, there was a decision at hand. Um, and then for a variety of reasons, you know, so that model was the dominant one in the United States for a long time. So again, from the founding of the country all the way through the 1940s, into the 1940s, um, maybe this is something you teach about too, but uh you know, then in, in the early 40s, um, due to things happening globally, you know, in culture and society and politics, technological advances, um, you know, economic changes. So for a whole, you know, a variety of reasons, we had the movement towards this objective model of journalism in the U.S. where you're supposed to get all of the different side. you know, if, if the, there's no such thing as two sides to an issue usually. You know, that's, that's what we used to think, but usually there's more than two sides. Um, but the idea that if you know, we have a sort of professional group of journalists um, whose job it is to try to be unbiased and objective and get all sides of the uh, issue and present those to uh, the masses, you know, to a larger sort of mainstream audience. Um, versus the smaller niche audiences that we had during the, when the partisan model, partisan press model was dominant. Uh, And that, so, so, you know, the evolution into the subjective model by the 1940s, and then that was the dominant model in the United States until arguably 20 years ago, or some people would say 10 to 20 years ago. Um, And then here we are, 2020, so maybe 15 years ago, you know, by 2006, I think, uh, we had seen uh, a marked change in U.S. news. Uh, and, and we already were seeing much more opinion uh, in, in our national news outlets, you know, in our big media outlets. Um, and 
you know, I can go on, but so there, yeah, there no, no, no. Know. The other, yeah. I mean, the other, the other factor here is that there's just a, pretty much an infinite amount of space for content. Now, I mean, we're no longer constrained by column inches in a newspaper or by a, a 30 minute evening newscast. I mean, there are 24 hours a day on cable, an infinite number of, of space online. And so I, I think you, you make the point also that there's an economic angle to this, whereas the, the amount of space for content broadly considered has gone up, the, the, the resources of news outlets to, to produce um, you know, reported news content has, have gone down. And so what fills the vacuum is this kind of opinion analysis, these, these sorts of things. Yes, that's, uh, uh, that's all true. Um, so these are some of the things that I talk about in the book, you know, some of the, just as you said, you know, some of the reasons for the expansion of opinion and news. I, um, one is this hyper-competitive environment for news that we have now. There are seemingly infinite sources where people can get news and information. And so with this hyper-competitive environment, if you're a news outlet or a journalist, how do you distinguish yourself from your competition? Uh, and one of the ways that a lot of outlets have decided to try to distinguish themselves is by offering personality or by offering a particular point of view. So rather than trying to continue to cater to the masses and everyone, um, they are, you know, they've moved back towards uh, this more niche audience model. Uh, so while a lot of people have been concerned for over a decade now about this move toward opinionated journalism, um, you know, my brief story back into history, right, you know, shows us that it's not the first time we've had this kind of news, that this is how we started um, and we seem to have come back to it. So I think, you know, hyper-competition, trying to distinguish an outlet from its competitors. Um, and then, as you said, yes, there is 24-hour news, but I would argue, so I once worked for CNN, <laughs> and I would argue that, uh, you know, what I talk about with my students is that there's much more than enough news happening in the world every day um, than needed to fill 24 hours, right? But the resources are the issue. So, you know, there's, again, infinite amount of news that, that is happening every single day around the world, but only a tiny fraction of it is going to be selected for coverage and become news that's been disseminated to people. Um, right, right. And it's, it's quicker and, and faster and easier to have people write their thoughts on what's happening as opposed to sending someone out on the ground to, to cover the news as it, as it happens and, and talk to other people and do what we would think of as, as traditional reporting. Definitely. Yes, definitely. All of that is true. You know, I mean, I talk about with my students, citizen journalism and user generated content. Uh, you know, we, I asked them, do you think anyone can be a journalist? Who's a journalist today? What is a journalist? Uh, do we still need them? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. <laughs> um, but yes, all of these things, all of these things are true. So major changes in technology, you know, why, again, why did news evolve into uh, much more opinionated forms, um, you know, fighting for the same audience, you know, m many more outlets or players now um, fighting over the same audiences, 
Um, and, you know, we also know that in the 2000s, starting in the 2000s, that a lot of news organizations did suffer tremendous financial losses, um, especially newspapers with the loss of the classified sections, with all of that going online, you know, the inability to continue to attract um, advertising uh, on news websites or to monetize them in the same ways that they previously had when there were hard copies of the paper. Um, you know, and then eventually when a lot of news organizations did start putting up paywalls and asking people to subscribe and pay to see their content, uh, not everyone wanted to do that. If they were used to initially getting that content for free, when previously they had to pay to get a copy of the newspaper, um, you know, now they're in an environment where they have so many other choices of getting that information. And so some of them would just opt um, to go elsewhere. So there were technological changes, you know, political changes, a lot of cultural changes, lots of things that um, journalists cite as having led to uh, this rise again in opinionated content today. Yeah, yeah, and and thinking about the the ways that we consume news. I mean, this is this is probably even even more true now than it than it was um, a couple of years ago. But by the time you turn on the TV or, or or read a story online, like you've you already know what the news is. Like you might have gotten an alert on your phone or seen it on Twitter or had some other interaction with what like the, the facts of the situation are. And I, I know you interview um Brian Stelter in, in your book. I I heard him say once on on a podcast that um in in his view cable news is has become more of a conversation about the news than the place where the news is actually reported itself. Um, I think that's like the, maybe the ultimate manifestation of, of some of these things that, that you're, you're talking about. Yes. So I've heard him say lots of um, things that I like and think are right <laughs> um, on his show. Uh, I think it was, you know, well before him, even though that, uh, you know, video that I use in my class, one of my classes, um, there are journalists saying that when journalists start interviewing each other, you know that the story is dwindling. Uh, that, yes, and we have a lot. We have a ton of that today. So journalists from one news outlet interviewing other journalists who have covered a story or have a view um, about a story. So yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I think that actually might, uh, I think we can get to, to some of the, the notion of civility uh, here too. I, I'm recalling a quote in your book from... Um, Donna Brazil, a, a well-known Democratic strategist and, and CNN commentator, um, she kind of draws this distinction between punditry and people that have genuine expertise. I, I mean, I think you could could argue that um, you know other other journalists that are often on talking about the stories they've covered, while they have put work into them, they're not experts in the way that somebody who works in a field full-time or, or a scholar or, or something like that might be. This is all a very long-winded way of, of asking how, how civility fits in here and, and whether trying to maybe make some of these shifts that, that, that Brazil and others suggest might help uh, increase civility or, or decrease polarization, those sorts of things. Yes, and I think what's most important, I think, you know, some things that I try to convey in the book, um, sort of takeaways 
uh, parting wisdom. Um, you know, I think you asked me what, when I got interested in, in researching all of this or how I decided to study it. Uh, and I was thinking it goes back to, I think for me, it partly goes back to when Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was shot, you know, Congresswoman from Arizona. And um, a lot of the accounts around that event uh, stated that she was shot by someone who had been incited by a lot of uncivil partisan rhetoric. And so this idea that, um, you know, uncivil rhetoric uh, could lead to actual aggression or violence and real harm in the real world. Um, I think that got a lot of people thinking and starting to try to act to do something about it. Um, there was the creation of the National Institute for Civil Discourse based at the University of Arizona with lots of journalists and other kinds of people who got on board. Um, and, you know, civility is an interesting thing. Uh, the more and more I started researching it, the more confused actually I think I became because I, I like most people, I think, or most people I know, you know, started out thinking that, um, of course, civility is a good thing and incivility is always a bad thing. Um, but there are actually some really well-respected uh, scholars who have reasoned that there may be times when incivility is called for or even can be used strategically. Um, like the political environment that we're in right now. Uh, that So while, again, maybe it's not something that we want to see more of, um, that it might be a strategy that people have to resort to if you're faced with an opponent who continues to be uncivil. And if you continue to respond in a civil way, that at some point you realize that that strategy is not effective um, and that you may also have to develop a strategy that's uh, you know less civil. But so, but most people would agree that's you know not something that we hope to see more of. Um, but again, so, and, you know, incivility is really an interesting thing. Um, it has positive and negative aspects. So academic research shows us that there are negative effects of incivility, uh, including in mediated political discourse. Uh, it undermines people's faith in government. So that's a big con, big negative and it discourages political participation. So again, we know from a large, consistent body of research that uh, you know, people who see others screaming at each other and saying nasty things about each other because they differ about political issues, um, that this makes other people uh, less likely to want to engage in conversation about politics or be exposed to divergent views about political issues or to right. participate politically. So those are the negatives. But on the positive side, we know that incivility can attract attention. So like you said, you know, that why do we have so many of these talking heads and um, you know, uncivil displays, especially on TV and in radio? Um, because it attracts attention. And then fortunately or unfortunately, people who are watching someone they agree with politically, if they're watching someone they agree with being uncivil, <laughs> that that can actually energize them to participate. So again, we think that, you know, as a whole, this is not a good thing, um, but there, there are some positive aspects of those dramatic displays. Uh, 
And right. when it comes to journalists, you know, when I ask journalists, what do you think of, uh, are you worried about incivility? Do you think there's more of it today than in the past? Um, they really have mixed views about it. And throughout, you know, throughout all of my research, one surprising finding to me uh, that I talk about in the book is that I expected that journalists' views about opinion in news and about incivility in news would break down neatly according to age and experience in the field, time in the field. And that's not what happened at all. And uh, it turned out that there were some older journalists who are very seasoned, um, who are not as concerned about opinionated news and even incivility in mediated discourse. Um, they're not that concerned for audiences for because of all of this. Um, they embrace social media using it to their advantage or to their organization's advantage. And then on the other side, you know, I did find examples of younger journalists, young journalists who aren't that experienced, um, who are who are concerned about uh, opinion and news and incivility and some who even who find having to use social media as part of their job to be a burden. So um, really, you know, there was a range of views from the journalists uh, Whose, whose words I analyzed and who, you know, who, who I talked with um, when it came to all of these things. And there's, you know, I, mean, I think one of the issues is that there's no consensus even on what incivility is. Um, people have all different kinds of ideas of what this is. You know, some people think that just mere impoliteness is being uncivil, while some people say, no, that's totally different. You know, uh, incivility means you're, you don't have any respect for the person you're um, talking with. Uh, you know, lack of respect or you're, you know, calling them names or using exaggeration and hyperbole or flat out, you know, lies, um, character attacks. So, uh, you know, there's not a consensus, but there are scholars who are trying to work to establish, um, you know, see if, if uh, there's at least a large number of people who have, uh, you know, particular ideas of what this means. Sure. Yeah, I think there's there might also be a, a narrative too. I've heard that that you know civility can also be um, a means to perpetuate the status quo. I think to to some of what you were saying earlier about yes. how uh, you know incivility can can be a way to gain attention sometimes when you you might not have it otherwise. Um. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated landscape for sure. And you know, I know you you were saying that the, the journalists you spoke to their their views were mixed. Um, but, but I'm wondering if if there was any consensus about whether they thought that they were contributing to the the decrease in civility just by by nature by virtue of of being part of this this media ecosystem. Some of them feel do feel responsible some of them said they did think that they and their colleagues are responsible and need to do something about it um others did not others said um this is nothing new you know they cited the days of the partisan press system um they just like you said you know equated calls for civility with censorship you know trying to censor um certain viewpoints um but you know, some of them did express concern for the audience. You know, yeah. uh, so so for for those that did, I mean, did they feel like they were in a position to do anything about it? 
Again, some did. I mean, it was interesting. Journalists who themselves are engaged in opinionated news um, don't like calling it opinion. (laughs) They like calling it point of view journalism or news analysis. I mean, so this is a little bit separate from, uh, you know, this is separate from incivility, but um, they like thinking of what they do as providing news analysis or providing a point of view. They don't like the word opinion. Um, But actually, you brought me to a really important distinction between opinion and incivility, and the two do not have to go together, and they are not equal. Um, So you definitely can have opinionated news um, without having it be uncivil. We just don't have a lot of examples of that. Um, And we also have research that shows that people can learn from opinionated news. So just mere opinion in news Again, it's not something all of a sudden new. We've had it before, so we've had a return to it uh, in some places. Um, And people can learn from it. Uh, And it's something different, distinct from incivility, and the two do not have to go together. So for example, you know, there aren't many good models of people um, uh, giving opinions about politics and doing so in a civil way, in a public way that lots of people see. Um, I think, I don't know how many of your listeners, you know, have ever seen the PBS NewsHour with Brooks, you know, especially when Brooks and Shields, um, when Mark Shields and David Brooks are on talking about politics. And I know one of the critiques of their show is that, um, that Brooks, who's supposed to be the conservative, isn't really that conservative, but uh, even so, they are on different sides of the spectrum politically. And they talk week after week about political issues without resorting to being uncivil. Um, So unfortunately, not a lot of young people are watching that show (laughs) or have ever watched that show. But I hold it up as just one model to show that it's possible for people who don't agree politically to talk about politics in a public way and to do so in a way that can be productive and further the conversation and everyone's knowledge and thinking um, without being uncivil. So we just don't have a lot of we don't have very many good models of that. Uh, right, yeah. And, and why is that? Well, I guess it would have to be at someone's expense that they'd have to take the risk of experimenting and creating more programs that do that. Um, it's something that I would love to see uh, that I think could be helpful. I mean, again, I know I say talk about academic research a lot because that's what I do. But, you know, we also have evidence. We know that... Um, people form more considered opinions when they're exposed to differing viewpoints on, on issues. Um, that that's how you become a more informed person. Um, that, you know, if you're exposed to views that differ from your own, well, you may never change the way that you see things, but at least it'll, it, it could um, help you understand how other people hold the views that they do. Uh, and maybe it, it do, maybe it will cause you to reconsider uh, your own view. So from a democratic standpoint, from a democratic ideal, you know, we think this is a good thing, that we want people with considered opinions making informed voting decisions, uh, especially. And one way to get people to not be so afraid to be exposed to divergent views and to talk with others who might not share their views um, is to show them models of it, you know, show them good models. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the National Institute for Civil Discourse. I know that's just one of many, many, many organizations that are, are trying to solve that problem or, or to, to come up with some of those models, whether it is through news and media or, or perhaps more often through in-person sessions, uh, you know, meetings, those, those kind of things. Um, I guess it seems like there's also a bit of an, an economic challenge here. I mean, if, if the, the market dictates that people don't want that that more type of nuanced or or civil if you want to call it that version of of opinion um then that's not what's attractive to advertisers that's not how people are going to make money but it's like a a chicken and, and the egg thing if people that's aren't a, that's right that's exactly to it then they right. don't know that they want it and yeah um how do you break through that that's exactly right i mean i use the analogy of you know do you feed people what they already have a taste for even if it's not good for them <laughs> or do you try to get them to like healthy food um and i think you know that is where we are in some ways and it again it would be a risk and it would be at someone's expense to try to create more models uh, of this but I think, you know, again, some takeaways from the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, going forward, this uh, environment that we have for news, our current journalistic landscape, it's not going to change anytime soon. We actually are in an environment where we have multiple models of journalism coexisting. So we still do have organizations and journalists who are trying to be objective, um, aspiring to that ideal. Um, while we at the same time have all of these opinionated outlets and journalists, we have vestiges of other journalistic models that we didn't have time to talk about, but you know that have existed over the decades of literary journalism, even advocacy journalism, public or civic journalism. I mean, you know, there's so many other forms of journalism um, that have uh, been popular at different points in time, and we still have pieces of all of those around today. So we're, the way I see it, you know, we're in this um, hybrid journalistic landscape, which is complex, certainly, but it's not necessarily good or bad. Uh, but there are steps that we and people can take to make it more productive and to work better. Um, so, you know, some of those things that people can do to try to make this current situation more productive Um, on the side of the news organizations and the journalists, I think that they should label their content and be honest about whether they're presenting a view or where they're coming from. They should be transparent about where they're getting their information from. So what are the sources of their information? Um, They should provide evidence for the claims that they make. Um, So I think there are still some basic principles of journalism that we should all, you know, expect um, from the places where we're getting our news, you know, sure. those include truth, you know, accuracy and transparency. So even if it's an outlet giving news with a view, that's fine. As long as what you're um, putting out is the truth. And I don't believe that, um, there's such a thing as alternative facts. There's a fact or it's not a fact, <laughs> right? So, um, you're either giving the truth or you're not. Um, and, you know, you're trying to make your accounts as verified and accurate as they can be, and you're being uh, as transparent as possible about the sources of your information and where you're coming from. Um, so I think, you know, there's still standards by which we should all be judging or evaluating the places where we're getting our information. Um, and then, you know, there are third-party sites like, of course, you know, I always cite my alma mater, the factcheck.org from the Annenberg School. 
Um, but there are other sites like it, politifact.com from the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, group um, that are trying to provide, you know, checks of uh, information, especially about politics that circulate. Um, other kinds of interventions. So we know that there are technological improvements in the works on Facebook and Twitter. Not all of those are successful, right? But they're, um, you know, been um, working to try to devise ways of detecting especially misinformation or disinformation. And those two things are different, but both neither is good. Um, and then finally, on the audience side, uh, you know, news users can be more responsible and aware. They really need to improve their news literacy training skills, their, their news literacy skills. And that can be accomplished through training and education. So I think that, you know, early from elementary school on through college, um, this needs to be a focus uh, in, in education, training people to be news literate. And, um, you know, what does that mean? Well, there are lots of different models. Of, you know, how do you, how do you become uh, news literate? Using multiple sources of information. You know, I always feel more confident that the account I'm reading is true and accurate if I can find it in at least one other place, and even better, more places, you know, more than two. Um, so looking across, you know, going beyond just whatever your favorite um, niche outlet is and uh, trying to see if you can confirm or get the same story somewhere else. Um, you know, asking yourself, uh, what is the source of this information? Um, does the person who's put or group that's putting it out have an agenda? And if so, what is that? When was it published? So we know people have been duped online um, by a news story that seems to be, you know, new and just posted. And then we look at the date. If you actually go in and look at the date, it was from 10 years ago and someone just dug it up and decided to post it now. Um, so there are things that people can do to be proactive um, with you know, with this environment. Yeah, no, those are all really great tips. Thank you for those. And we could have an entirely other conversation about <laughs> fact-checking and, and some of those things uh, that, that, that you were mentioning. Um, but, you know, so what about for uh, people listening to this episode that are journalism instructors? How should they be thinking about this, as, as you said, complex kind of mixed environment that we're in and, and trying to help their students make sense of it uh, as, as they're training to, to become journalists today? So I think one of the things that needs to be conveyed to students and young people um, is, you know, they come into class um, having heard all kinds of things that whether it's their relatives or friends or maybe other professors, you know, are saying about the news and media and journalists, many that are negative. Um, and I think one important thing to convey to them is that people have actually always been critics and dissatisfied with the state of news, the news media and politics since like, you know, the beginning of time. Um, and that everyone tends to think that eras that came before were better. Um, but there really have always been criticisms of news. And what I personally believe and tell my students is that there are still many journalists, the majority, um, doing their very best, even risking their lives to bring us accurate, reliable news and perform this crucial role 
for citizens in a democracy and that we need good, honest, professional journalists today as much as or maybe more than ever. Um, so yes, we are in this diverse environment, but I think again, you know, the fundamental principles haven't um, changed and there are things that, yes, you know, news organizations can, can do um, to, to make this environment more productive, but that also um, news users can do. Sure. Amen to all of that, really. Um, and, and so finally, um, you know, and this is a, a very interesting time to be studying the, the news business and civility and all these things we, we've just been talking about. Um, what's next for you in, in your research? Are you planning to continue studying any of these themes? It's nice of you to ask. So the answer is yes, of course. Um, I have related ongoing projects, um, so really two major new projects. Um, one, you know, sort of keeping with the incivility uh, theme a little bit and, and political theme a little bit with journalists. Um, a co-author and I, Greg Perot and I, um, have written a, an, a piece called Reporting Hate, Meta-Journalistic Discourse on Reporting Policies About the Alt-Right. And that, in that uh, study, we examined the policies, the actual stated policies that news organizations um, came out with uh, uh, in the wake of the Charlottesville violence um, and uh, in other act, Las Vegas uh, shoot, mass shooting, um, that there are organizations, news organizations that have actually articulated ways that their or that their journalists are going to cover the alt right in the future. Um, and one of the things you know that they say in those policies is not to call them the alt right because that um, that's a term that might include a huge swath of people, um, you know, different kinds of people, and that to actually call the groups who are responsible for the violence um, what who they are. You know, so talk about them as white nationalists or talk about them um, in other terms. Uh, so to use, you know, to use wording that's specific. Um, so that's one of the things I've been working on. And then another piece, uh, another study where that's ongoing, where, again, I'll be interviewing journalists and looking at everything, you know, published discourse about how over the past several years where journalists and their organizations have been publicly attacked, you know, both to their reputations and then the worst is when they've actually been attacked physically. Um, but uh, how they've responded to attacks on their reputation and their legitimacy, um, how, you know, so how they and their organizations are defending and promoting the value of journalism in this time. Oh, well, those sound both like very interesting projects. Uh, looking forward to to seeing those when they uh, come out. Um, but uh, but again, to, to reiterate, um, your book is from news to talk: the expansion of opinion and commentary in U.S. journal in U.S. journalism. Excuse me, and it is out now from SUNY Press. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much, Jenna. I enjoyed it. <laughs>